Well, we are continuing our study of Philippians. We are in chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 14 today. And as Rachel's already indicated, um, we're going to finish out this section. And before we go into some of the more personal items that Paul mentions in the latter part of chapter 2, we're going to have a Q&A. I'm well aware of the fact that um, I normally take us right up to the end of the session. Sometimes we even go a few minutes beyond the session. And I do sometimes get questions after the class. Now, normally when we're doing this live, if I see that somebody has a question or raises their hand, I have the opportunity to pause for a moment and answer your queries. But we haven't been able to do that because of this Zoom class. So I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that. Um, we're talking about very important things, and there are times when you have questions or you need some clarification, and I want to give you the opportunity to do that. This will be easier, as I said, when we go back to doing things live, uh, but for the time being, the best way for you to send in your questions is through the chat feature. Now, if you don't know how to do that, um, you can go ahead and raise your hand, and um, Rachel can call on you if she can see you up there on the screen. But otherwise, you should have a chat feature down there in the lower part of your screen, and you should be able to send in questions. And she's going to sort of keep a list of those. And if we come to the end of the class and have time, then I will go ahead and answer as many of those as I possibly can. But right now, let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll turn to Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. Let us pray. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word. Assist us with thy Holy Spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, and to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. All right, Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. Paul is writing, of course, to this church, to these believers who have remembered him in spite of the fact that he is imprisoned, that he is no longer able to go out and freely preach the gospel. At least it's a temporary imprisonment. We say that Paul probably was released from this imprisonment. He would be arrested at a later date, brought back to Rome, where he would be thrown into the Mamertine jail, and ultimately martyred on the Ostian Way going out of Rome. But this was a temporary imprisonment. Paul didn't know, of course, that he was going to be released and able to have a period of liberty. But for the time being, he is locked away in prison, and we said that he has been pretty much forgotten by everybody. But the Philippians had remembered him, and so he's writing this letter to them. And he is thanking them for their gifts to to him for remembering him in spite of his difficulties, but he also wants to give them some encouragement. Uh, he is still their father in God, and that is exactly what he's doing here. And in verse 14, he writes, do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. For even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul is telling them that they are like lights shining in the world. The New International Version translates this text like stars shining in the universe. I think that's a beautiful image of what our lives as Christians are supposed to be like. We are to be like stars. The stars come out in the midst of the darkness, and they illuminate the night sky, and that is exactly what our lives are to be like. That's what the lives of the Philippians were to be like. Paul knew how dark the world of his day really was. It's one of the reasons why he was imprisoned when he wrote this letter. And he was encouraging them to let their light shine. That is exactly what Jesus had said to his disciples. He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. He says, don't take your light and hide it under a bucket or under a bushel, but put it on a lampstand that it may give light to the entire house. Paul is saying the same thing here. He's saying that we are to shine in a dark and depraved, a crooked and twisted generation. 
One of the things that you'll notice about Paul's writings, and we've talked about this before, is that doctrine, when it comes to Paul, always leads to praxis. That is to say, Paul is not just engaging in some sort of academic exercise where he's dealing with all of these great doctrines, all of this great ethereal theology. Paul wants us to understand that that theology, these great doctrines, have practical implications for the way we live our day-to-day -day life. And that's why I think it's no mistake that Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, talks about all of those great things pertaining to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, to the fact that Jesus was equal with God, to the fact that Jesus Christ did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he let it go. He came down. That is the message of the incarnation. He took on human flesh. He became a servant. We said that the Greek is doulos, bond servant, a slave for us men and for our salvation. He then mounted the arms of the cross, offered himself as an atoning sacrifice for us and for the sins of the world, and then was highly exalted. He was raised again on the third day. He ascended to the Father and even now sits in the place of honor where he intercedes for us. All of those great doctrines are packed there into Philippians chapter 2. And then having talked about all of this great doctrine, all of these great teachings, Paul then says, now what are the implications of this for your life? The doctrine always leads to practice. Given the fact that all of this is true, Paul says, how now shall we live? We are to live differently. He said, we are to be like stars, like lights shining in a darkened world. Now, of course, Paul is simply echoing the very same thing that Jesus himself said. Jesus said something very similar in Matthew chapter 5. If you have your finger uh, in Philippians, turn back, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5. This section of Matthew is a portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, right after that most familiar section, the Beatitudes, Jesus goes on to say this. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. He proceeds, you are the light of the world. A city set upon a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Paul, or Jesus rather, uses two images here. One is salt and one is light. Now, these are images that you're probably familiar with, but salt in the ancient world had a number of very important functions. In an age before refrigeration, of course, the primary function of salt was to stem the tide of decay or putrefaction. You would take salt and you would rub it into meat and it would be a preservative. When Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, part of what he means is that the world is in a state of decay. Morally, spiritually, it is in decay. And you and I are called to be salt in that kind of a culture. We are to help stem the tide of decay. Now, one of the things you'll notice about salt is that when you rub salt into meat, it disappears. In other words, it becomes invisible. You cannot see it. And yet, even though it's invisible, even though you cannot see it, you can nevertheless taste it. You can taste the salt, and you can see its effect. So when Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, he means that we are to be rubbed into the culture in such a way that we help to stem the tide of decay. And even when we disappear from the scene, we can have a lasting effect upon the world. And of course, salt is not only used as a preservative, salt was also used as condiment in Jesus' day, just as it is today. If you're anything like me, the very first thing you do, oftentimes before you even taste your food, is you reach for the salt shaker. Now, I know that's not what you're supposed to do, but nevertheless, we often do it. And that's because food without salt is bland. It really doesn't have a taste. What salt does is it brings out the flavor in meat or any other kind of food. And Jesus is saying that is what his disciples were to be as well. Without a relationship with God, life is bland. It is meaningless. It has no real purpose. And we are to be like a condiment, bringing out the zest in life. Salt actually had a further function in the ancient world. It was often used to cure people. 
Um, it was oftentimes used to help facilitate healing. If you've ever had a scratch on your leg and you go into the ocean and you splash around, what you'll find is that that salt, even though it can at first be painful, we speak of salt being rubbed into a wound, but actually salt can actually help produce healing. So when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he means all of those things. But he not only says that we are to be the salt of the earth, he goes on to say to his disciples, you are the light of the world. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus describes himself as the light of the world, but then he describes his disciples as the light of the world as well. Now, they are not light in the same way that he is the light of the world. If Jesus is the sun, you and I at best are the moon. We reflect the light of the sun, but nevertheless, we are a light. Now, the world of Jesus' day was a dark world. We need to recognize that. It was a dark world. Sometimes I think we look at movies, uh, movies, you know, starring uh, great actors like James Mason or somebody like that from the ancient world. We see these depictions of first century culture, or we, we think of the Roman world, and we have a tendency to romanticize things. But the world of Jesus' day was a very dark world. It was dark, as I said, morally. It was a great deal of moral corruption in those days. It was dark in terms of its violence. There was a great deal of gratuitous violence in the ancient world. People were oftentimes put to death for sheer sport. There was nothing romantic about the first century world. Even though this was the age of the famed Pax Romana, the famed Roman peace, it was nevertheless a place that was violent even in its peacetime. And it was a spiritually dark world. We're living in a time in which most of the major religions, the three great religions in the world today, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, are all monotheistic religions. But you have to understand that in Jesus' day, there was no belief in monotheism. The only religion that really was monotheistic was Judaism. Most of the people worshiped all kinds of gods and idols. The Romans, the Greeks, literally had thousands of gods and deities that they worshiped. There was even a god of the compost pile. There was even a god of the door hinges. It was a dark world spiritually, morally, and otherwise. And Jesus was telling his disciples that they were to be lights in that darkness. They were to be salt in that decaying, bland culture. And of course, that is exactly what Paul says the Philippians were to be. Now, in order to be salt in the world, in order to be stars shining in the darkness, the first thing you have to understand, and you cannot have any illusions about this, the first thing you have to understand is that the world in which you and I operate is dark. You know, sometimes people have a very romantic view of mankind or humanity. We have a tendency to think that people are basically good and the world is a lovely place. But in terms of its moral and spiritual state, the scripture is very clear. The world in which you and I live is a very dark place. It is a dismal situation. And if you don't believe me, turn, if you will, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. This was Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's sometimes referred to as his last will and testament. At the time that Paul wrote 2 Timothy, unlike the time that he wrote Philippians, he was in jail again, but it was not this first imprisonment. It was his final imprisonment. He had been recalled to Rome. He'd been arrested by order of the emperor. Nero had started a systematic purge of Christians throughout the Roman Empire. Rome, by this point, had burned, and he had made the Christians a scapegoat for the destruction of the imperial capital. And he was systematically going through communities and villages and putting Christians to death. And because Paul was regarded as a ringleader of this sect, Paul was imprisoned. And ultimately, he would be martyred. So these are among the last words that we have from the hand of the Apostle Paul. And if you take a look at it, the last words of this great man, what does Paul say? Well, he's writing to a young man who is living in Ephesus, who's very different than he is. Timothy was a very different kind of individual from Paul. They were both devoted to the gospel, but whereas Paul was this sort of forceful, courageous, strong person, Timothy was young. He was weak. 
He was even sickly. But Paul is nevertheless going to hand the baton of leadership off to young Timothy. Now think about that. Think about what that meant for Timothy to have to step into the shoes of a giant like the Apostle Paul. He must have been quaking in his boots at the very prospect. And yet Paul writes this letter to him. Words of advice from a senior pastor to his young associate. And look at what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Now, when Paul says the last days, what is he referring to? In the New Testament, the last days are that whole period of time between the Lord's ascension and his return in glory. All right, you can basically divide biblical history. This is oversimplifying it, but nevertheless, it may prove helpful. You can divide biblical history into three great segments. The first segment we would call creation and fall. God creates the world. A mankind is created to be in fellowship with God and to extend the blessings of Eden to the whole of creation. Man fails in that task. You have the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And then you have this long period of history until the arrival of the long-promised Messiah. So history sort of collapses, and then it begins to build until the arrival of Jesus Christ. That's the, the centerpiece of history, the arrival of the Messiah. And Jesus walks among us for a relatively brief period of time. He walks among us for about 33 years. Three of those years, he's in active ministry. He dies. He is resurrected. He ascends to the Father. And the next great event in history will be what? His return at the end of the age. And so that's what we are waiting for. We are in that last segment between his ascension and his return in glory. The one who came in humility to be born in Bethlehem will return at the end of the age with power and great glory to judge the quick and the dead. So we're waiting for that final period. That's what Paul means by the last days. And that's what we're living in. We're in the living in the last days. That's the next big event. Now, are we living in the last of the last days? Who knows? But what Paul is saying to Timothy is this is what you can expect in that last segment of history, that period between Christ's ascension and his return. What can we expect in the world? He goes on to say this, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, that is, all the trappings of religion, but denying its power. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read those words, I think to myself, they could have been written yesterday. That's not just a description of first century Greco-Roman culture. Folks, that is a depiction of 21st century Western culture. Aren't we living in an age in which people are lovers of self? It's all about me. Aren't we living in a time in which people are lovers of money, materialism? It's all about the stuff. Whoever dies with the most toys wins. Aren't we living in an age in which people are proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents? My goodness. I understand that in some states it's possible to even divorce your parents. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous. Just think about the Supreme Court hearings that we had a little over a year ago, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. I think this is one of the most damning statements of all, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. 
We're living in a pleasure-loving culture. People think you only go around once, so grab all the gusto you can get. When Paul went to Athens in the book of Acts, we're told that he encountered Epicureans. They were the followers of a philosopher by the name of Epicurus, and they had a very simple philosophy of life. If it feels good, do it. And if it feels bad, avoid it. Well, do you think the Epicureans are still with us today? You better believe they are. If it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, avoid it. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness, how many of the great denominations that were once powerhouses for the gospel have fallen on hard times, have abandoned their first love, have sold their birthright, and are now on the decline, on a race to the bottom. We know what those denominations are. And all because they have the trappings of religion, but they have denied its power. Folks, that's the world in which you and I live and move and have our being. And you can never be salt and light in the world unless you realize that the world needs those things. So let's not come with any illusions about what the world is like. The world is a broken, needy, fallen, corrupted place. Now, that does not mean that God does not love the world. It does not mean that this is what God intended for the world. When God created the world and he looked on the things that he had made, he continually pronounced a benediction on these things. He looked at what he had made and he said, it is good, it is good, it is very good. The problem is that what was good has been corrupted. It's in this process of decay, which is why we need salt. It is becoming increasingly dark, which is why we need the light. So we need to realize that, yes, there are still vestiges of brightness in our world. It's not to say that the world is as dark as it possibly can be. It does not mean that the world is corrupted completely. There are still shadows, but there are still bright spots as well. But the problem, I and you've heard me say this before, the problem is that we are really living, at least in our day and age, in a cut flower culture. Cut flowers are beautiful, but there's a problem. Cut flowers have been cut off from their life source, and they do not survive. And that is exactly what has happened to us. Paul was operating in a pre-Christian culture. You and I are operating in a post-Christian culture. And if there are any vestiges of light still operating in the world today, it's because we are still living off the fumes of Christianity. But as I said, when you cut flowers off, you cut them off from their life source, and eventually the petals begin to fall. And I think that's what we're seeing in Western culture today. We're beginning to see the petals fall. And what's the hope for such a culture? What's the hope for such a world? Paul and Jesus say, the hope for such a world is you and me. You are the salt. You are the light. You are to shine like stars in the universe. Now, how are we to do this? Sometimes when we look at the world, it appears to be a Herculean task. My goodness, How can we possibly make a difference in that kind of a climate? Well, that's what Paul is talking about in the verses that we have before us today. So if you go back to Philippians chapter 2 now, to verses 14 and through 16, you'll get an idea of what he says. How are we to live in this kind of a culture? Paul suggests to us a number of things. First of all, he says, do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. The first thing Paul says is that we are to do everything without grumbling or questioning. Some translations say grumbling or disputing. I would say that what Paul is really saying here is that we can only be salt and light. We can only be stars shining in the universe if we are willing to submit our entire lives to God. 
That's what he means, to do all things. He means to do all those things that God has commanded without grumbling and without disputing. Now you think about it. How many of us like grumblers? How many of us like people who are chronic complainers? The children of Israel during their wanderings in the wilderness were oftentimes criticized by God or punished by God or disciplined by God because they were grumbling. They were never satisfied. They were always grumbling. Jesus talks in one of his parables about those who came and grumbled against the master of the house because they thought they were being mistreated. They weren't being mistreated, the parable of the vineyard workers. They weren't being mistreated. They were being treated fairly. They were being given exactly what God had commanded. But because it wasn't everything that they wanted, they grumbled. They grumbled. That is to say, they were not satisfied with being obedient. But he says they not only grumble, he says you have to do everything without disputing. The NIV, the New International Version, translates this grumbling and arguing. And I actually like that word arguing. The word arguing comes from the word that literally means dialoguing. Now, I know we hear a great deal about dialogue today, and we're told that dialogue is a good thing, and the church is supposed to dialogue between the liberal factions and the conservative factions, and when it comes to politics, Republicans need to learn to dialogue with Democrats and vice versa. But while dialogue may appear to be a good thing in a cultural sense, from a biblical sense, dialogue is not a good thing. Because dialogue suggests negotiation. It suggests that God has commanded us to do something, and we can dialogue with God about that. We can negotiate with God about that. We can try to reason with God in order to get our own way. Now, anybody who is a parent has had to deal with this with their children. You draw a line in the sand, and you do that. You set boundaries for your children because you love them. You care for them. But the older they get, the smarter they get, the more they will try to dispute with you, argue with you, dialogue with you, reason with you, negotiate with you. And you suddenly realize, as somebody once said, that you can't negotiate with terrorists. And sometimes that's the way it feels when you're dealing with your children. Look, I, I, I've said what I'm going to do. Why are we negotiating? Why are we having this conversation? And sometimes that's the way we feel that we have to live with God. Well, Paul says if we're going to be lights in the midst of this crooked generation, we have to submit our whole selves to God. We, we cannot negotiate with God. We cannot grumble because we're not happy with what God has called us to do. Jesus is Lord. And if he is not Lord of all, then he is not Lord at all. So how are we to be salt and light in the world? To submit our lives to the authority of Christ. I had a conversation with the clergy about this just the other day. I think that one of the major problems in the church and in the world today is authority. Everybody Everybody lives under some authority. The only question is, what is your authority? What is the authority for the ideas that you hold or the things that you do? For many people, they are an authority unto themselves. That's what that old poem Invictus means. I will be the master of my own fate. I will be the captain of my own destiny. I'll be answerable to no one. I'm an authority unto myself. Well, if you go back to the beginning of the Bible, what you realize is that that is the root of all sin. So Paul says, we're living in this dark world, we're living in this decaying world, and if you and I are going to be stars shining in the darkness, the first thing that has to happen is that we have to submit ourselves to the authority of Almighty God. He must be our master in all things. That's the first thing Paul says. Second thing Paul goes on to say is this. He says, you are to be blameless and innocent. You're to do all things without grumbling or questioning. And secondly, he says, you are to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. 
Now, the ESV translate this blameless and innocent. That word innocent can be a little confusing. I like the New International Version's translation on this text a little better. It says to be blameless and pure. Now, the reason I like pure better than innocent is because innocence means all kinds of things to many people today. One of the things that innocence means is ignorance. We think of innocent children, the innocence of children. What we really mean by that is the ignorance of children. But when you talk about purity, what do you mean? Well, that word pure means without mixture. Without mixture. Something that is pure is not an alloy. It has nothing that has been added to it. Pure gold is just that. It is all gold. It's not gold with something else. Pure silver is just that. It's, it's not silver and copper mixed together. It's, it's silver. So to be blameless and pure, it means it is to have a life that is not a mixture of all kinds of things. It is without mixture. Now, let me just give you some pictures, because pictures are worth a thousand words. Let me just give you some pictures of lives that were not pure and lives that were. And when I'm talking about purity, I'm not talking about their souls so much as their actions. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about living in the world. He's saying you're to live in the world. We're not to be like the world. We're not to be of the world, but we are to be in the world. Jesus said that in his great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. He said, Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. I'm sending them into the world, Jesus said, just as you sent me into the world. We are to live in the world, but we are to be salt and light in the midst of it. So what I'm going to describe for you is the way people live their lives. And sometimes when they live their lives, it does not appear to be pure. Now, let me give you an example of one person, and that's the Apostle Peter. Now, Peter was a great man, and there's much that we can learn from Peter. Much of it is good. Most of it is good. But there were times when Peter, as you know, failed. There was that great confession of Jesus at Caesarea, where uh, Philippi, where Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ. And when Jesus goes on to explain what it means to be the Christ, what happens? Peter rebukes him. God forbid this must never happen to you. And Peter, who had just been acclaimed, this great rock upon which Christ would build his church, is now ridiculed and disciplined. He says, get behind me, Satan. So Peter sometimes got it right, sometimes he got it wrong. And when he got it wrong, he got it dead wrong. Well, here's an example from Peter's life in which he really got it wrong. And that other great apostle, the apostle Paul, actually confronted him about it. So turn back to the left in your Bible to Galatians chapter 2. And we have this account of Paul's confronting Peter for what he regarded as hypocritical behavior. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. But when Cephas, or Cephas, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Can you imagine what that would have been like? I mean, you're talking about two titans of the faith, Peter and Paul, and Paul is describing a moment where he confronts Peter to his face. Cephas, Cephas, that's just another name for Peter. I opposed him to his face. Why? Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. When it says certain men who came from James, he means certain men from Jerusalem. James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He said before these men came from Jerusalem, Peter would eat with Gentiles. But when these men from Jerusalem came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So when Peter was with one group, he did one thing. When he was with another group, he did something else. And the rest of the Jews acted, and here's the word that Paul uses here, hypocritically, along with him. Paul is basically calling Peter out, and he's making no bones about it. He's calling Peter a hypocrite. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. 
But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Kephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So what Paul was accusing Peter of was being a mixture. That is, proclaiming the gospel that we're saved by grace through faith, but then acting as though we're saved by our works, by circumcision and by eating certain things and obeying the kosher laws. See, that's a life with mixture, and it sends a mixed message. Well, I'm happy to say that Peter and Paul sorted that out, and Peter eventually came around to seeing things Paul's way. In fact, at that first church council, he even took Paul's side in the argument. So Paul won him over. But initially, at least, this was a very tense moment. So you see the mixture there, saying one thing, doing something else. Well, let me just give you an example of three people who were not a mixture. And it cost them, but it was a powerful witness. Go back in the Old Testament to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3. Now, this is a story that may be familiar to you. Perhaps you haven't heard of it for some time, but you probably got it when you were in Sunday school. It is the story of the three Hebrew youths, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're going to sort of skip around in this chapter, but I'll give you the idea. They're in Babylon. It's Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justice, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province. And basically what he says is this. Whenever you hear the herald proclaimed and the musical instruments strike up, everybody is to fall down and worship the golden image. Verse 6, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every other kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. In other words, if they didn't worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar set up, if they were not obedient to the king, they would have to forfeit their lives. Now, think about this for a minute. You can think to yourself, and you can begin to rationalize things. You can say, well, all right, we know that an idol is not an idol, so we'll just bow down to it, but in our hearts, we'll remain loyal to God. Now, many people do that sort of thing. They rationalize it. But that's a mixture, you see. That's not pure. Look at verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. You know, the Jews were not allowed to worship any god but God alone. And they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. That is to say, these are high-ranking men namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. And so they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of all these musical instruments, to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? It's a crisis moment. I love the next verse. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, 
we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, here it is, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Our God is perfectly capable of delivering us, but we want you to know, even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. Now, what is that? That is blameless. That is pure. That is without mixture. Now, what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You'll have to read the rest of the chapter by yourself. But you get an idea of what this is all about. It is without mixture. To be blameless and pure means to be honest. It means to be forthright. It means to be upright in all of your dealings. That's how you shine in the darkness. It is to be innocent. And how does a person remain innocent? Paul says it right here at the end, by holding fast to the word of life. What is the word of life? Well, of course, Jesus is the word made flesh, so Christ is the word of life. And in addition to Christ being the word of life, his word is the life. Go back, and I'll end with this today and then take your questions, but go back to 2 Timothy, that passage that we looked at at the very beginning, where Paul is talking about what it's going to be like in those last days. I want you to notice something. It's very interesting the way he puts it in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'll give you a minute to get there. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul, as I said, describes this world in which we're living, a time of great difficulty in which people are lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, etc. What are we supposed to do in such a time? What was Timothy supposed to do in such a time? Same chapter, verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned. Continue. That is, hold fast, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Here's one of the great verses of the New Testament, for all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. How do we do this? How do we shine as stars in this darkened world? By submitting ourselves to the authority of Christ, doing all things without grumbling and complaining, to live lives that are blameless and innocent, pure, not a mixture, not hypocrites. You know, that word hypocrite is a very interesting word. It comes from the age of the Greek plays. In the Greek plays, you would wear a mask. The actors would appear on the stage and they would wear a mask. If they were playing a tragic role, they wore a tragic mask. If they were playing a comic role, they wore a comical mask. And at the end of the production, they would remove their masks. The Greek was anupokritos, without a mask. A hypocrite is someone who wears a mask. To be pure and blameless is to be without a mask. That's what Paul says, we are to be without a mask. And how do we learn to do that? By continuing in what we have learned and have believed, regardless of what the world is believing, regardless of what the world is doing, we are holding fast in the knowledge that all Scripture is breathed out by God. This is a powerful statement. The King James Version translates this, all Scripture is inspired. 
There's nothing wrong with that word necessarily, but when we think of people who are inspired, we think of William Shakespeare, for example, who was inspired when he wrote his works. But that's not what Paul says here. The Greek word is theopanustos. It literally means breathed out. That's why it's translated like that. How do we remain blameless and pure? How do we continue to do all things without grumbling and complaining? How do we shine like stars in the darkness? By holding fast to the word of life. What the church needs, perhaps more than anything else in our day and age, is a people who know the word of God and a people who are willing to live their lives under the authority of that word. We're living in a time in which the Bible is more readily available than at any other point in history, and we're living in a time in which the knowledge of the Bible is at one of the lowest ebbs in this nation's history. Let us read, mark, learn, inwardly digest the word of God and hold fast to the word of life. Let me stop right there because we're going to head into a new section in 2 Timothy. And let me just see if there are any questions that have come in that I can possibly answer. Now, Rachel is going to tell me what the questions are. I'll repeat them and then try to answer them for you. Okay, so the question is, in regard to dialogue, that is to say, having um, this ongoing negotiation with God, would I say that Abraham did this, or is that an exception in the Old Testament? I would say you have to look at the context uh, to understand what's really taking place there. Um, I think sometimes when it came to Abraham, and I'm assuming that you're talking about the destruction of cities and so forth, that what I think Abraham was doing is having not so much a dialogue as a conversation. He's trying to understand. And because God looks on not just on the outward appearance, but on our hearts, that's what the call to purity says every Sunday, God is the one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, the one from whom no secrets are hid. God knows what our motivation is. And if our motivation is simply to understand, if we're asking questions really with the intent of trying to understand, to comprehend so that we can better obey, that's one thing. But if, in fact, you are trying to actually change the immutable will of God, well, then that's something else entirely. And I think in the case of Abraham, he was just trying to understand why God was doing what God was doing. He wasn't necessarily questioning God's wisdom but he didn't necessarily understand. And I think there's a difference between the two. God wants us to have inquiring minds. He longs for us to try and understand so that we can better obey. What he does not want us to do is to try to change his mind, to somehow think that we can negotiate with him. So good question. Rachel? Mm-hmm. So the question is, um, and these are anonymous, so I don't know exactly who's asking these questions, but as far as Paul and Peter uh, being at odds with each other, didn't Paul say, when in Rome, do as the Romans do? Uh, no, Paul never said that. That's an expression that's out there um, in the culture, but um, Paul never said anything like that. Paul would have said, whatever you do, don't do what the Romans uh, do. Um, we are called to walk out of step with the world. No, Paul was calling us to be just that, to be blameless and pure, uh, to be without uh, hypocrisy. And uh, that was the problem for Peter. Um, when Peter was with the Gentiles, he ate with the Gentiles. Uh, he ate whatever the Gentiles ate. But when he found Jews that came from Jerusalem, he was embarrassed by this, and he withdrew from that fellowship with the Gentiles. And it was a hurtful thing. And so Paul called him out on it. No, Paul never said... Um, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. That's what we do, uh, and oftentimes uh, we're in step with the world. Um, incidentally, not this Sunday, but next Sunday, I'm up to preach, and I'm preaching on John 17, which is the high priestly prayer, and we're going to talk about the marks of an authentic Christian life. And one of the things that Jesus says is a mark of the authentic Christian life is holiness. 
Now, what is holiness? Well, the way that Jesus describes holiness in that prayer is to contrast it with worldliness, with worldliness. And so what it means to be holy is to be somebody who is not worldly. So that's a good way to understand the contrast. Rachel? Somebody raise a hand. Is that it? Those are the only... Oh, Martha's got another question. Well, go ahead and, and unmute yourself, Martha. All right. I confess that I wrote that question about when in Rome <laughs> to us the Romans do. Okay. And what I was really meaning... I, I, when I wrote that, I thought, that's not a scripture. But what I was really meaning is when... Paul does talk about not doing something to hurt a weaker or less mature brother or sister. So that's really the intent of that. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's, that was the original, that was really the intent. I'm just, I'm just defending myself. <laughs> okay. Well, you were, you were innocent. So nobody knew that it was you. So, <laughs> but now they do. <laughs> it's okay. I'm willing to be a fool for Christ. <laughs> okay. Any other questions? Well, we've ended a little bit early. We're going to come back and um, look at Philippians next week. Um, but if you do have questions, please feel free to submit them. Um, you can go ahead and send them in, as I said, via the chat, or you can email them to Rachel, and I'm glad to answer any questions that you may have. Please do not be shy about that. I know that we're flying through this material, and as I said, when we're doing it as a live act, you have the opportunity. I can sometimes tell by looking at your faces um, whether or not I'm making a connection or not. Um, but that's very difficult to do via the screen because I cannot see all of the faces at the same time. So if you have questions, please do not hesitate. But in the meantime, until we gather again next week or until I see you on Sunday, may God grant you the grace to live as blameless and innocent children, holy and upright like stars shining in the universe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and for these words of wisdom that he offered to the Philippian church. These are words not just for a people who lived in the first century, they are certainly applicable to our lives in the 21st century. Grant us the grace to follow as Paul leads, that we may be salt and light in this bland, dying, darkened world, that we may shine like stars in the heavens. For Christ's sake, amen. God bless you. We'll talk to you soon. Take care.